Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, if you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Three verses today for our sermon. This is the continuing the Advent series that elders are doing. Uh, there'll be this one, and then Dan will speak next week, and then Justin will wrap up the series two weeks from today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. And I'll read the chapters, we'll have a prayer, and then we'll uh, see what the Lord has to say about us, uh, say to us. Matthew two sixteen. when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then when what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Let us pray. Our Father, we are coming to you today as a needy people who need your word, need your truth, uh, need your help in, in every possible way. We thank you for the worship we've had so far, for how you've been with us as we sang and, and heard the word read. And we pray it continue to be with us, Lord, in a special way as we uh, decipher what this very uh, hard-to-read and very enigmatic passage says to us today, what it said to the people 2,000 years ago to these grieving mothers and what it says to us today. So help us, Lord, to understand. Let your spirit reveal to us these truths, not in a strictly academic sense, but in a way that will change our hearts, Father, that will draw us closer to Christ, that will transform us more uh, into his image to, make, to allow us to love him more and therefore love one another more. So pour out your, your love and your knowledge and your wisdom in our hearts, Father, as we examine these words. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you can guess, this is a rather difficult passage uh, for Christians to deal with. Even to a casual reader, it's rather hard. One second. There we go. Don't want to go over time. Uh, it comes up in debates often about theodicy, that the study of evil, the existence of evil, which is often called the Achilles heel of Christian theology. Uh, it's a passage many of us wish weren't actually in the scripture. Uh, it's a very grievous, uh, stupendously evil event. Even the unbeliever uh, acknowledges how, how horrible this event is, that this slaughtering of, of innocent children. Yet it's not only here in the Bible, but it's in one of the most conspicuous places in the Scripture. It's in the second chapter of Matthew. When you open up your New Testament, this is not far from the very beginning of that section. So as you read before you get into the second chapter, or in the middle of the second chapter, you're at this very difficult passage. Not only that, but it's in the, the Christmas story, the part of the Bible that is about love and mercy and grace and, and God's kindness and, and, and love for us. It, here in the middle of that is this very, very difficult passage about this slaughtering of the infants. It appears to be a senseless death. So it's a rather difficult passage. And one of the ways it's often dealt with is as a 
uh, dealing with the issue of life. We often hear this preached regarding uh, abortion, and that's, that's perfectly fine. God allows us to extract principles, extract presuppositions from passages, and preach on those. We do that all the time. So anybody, I know Justin's done that. I've heard some of the best sermons preached on life from this passage here. That's perfectly fine. But there's a very specific purpose that Matthew had in giving us this passage. And it goes far deeper than just the issue of life. There's something more profound here that we need to understand. And there's always some original intent. The author always wrote for some specific reason. Uh, we, and we have to examine his logic, uh, the progression of his thought, uh, literary context, and other aspects of that passage to figure out what was the author trying to say to the people of his day. What message did he have for them, and how do we extract that and apply it to our day? That's one of the great tasks of coming to the Bible and doing expositional preaching. And there is a very definite reason that Matthew puts this passage here. And that reason is this. He's telling us in this story that there is a major historical redemptive event that is about to come. Let me say that again. There is a major historical redemptive event that is about to come. And that, that's a big word there, historical redemptive event. And often when we uh, theologians describe things, or even people that study things at a very technical level, they, they take big words that have a lot of meaning to them. And they're, they're very good and they're very helpful. And that's what this is here. So what, I, what I'll do is unpack this. What do I mean by a, a major historical redemptive event? W what is that? And if you listen to Justin preach, often you'll hear him tell the story of the Bible. He'll just go through and, and trace all the major points of the scriptures. And if you listen to that, or if you read the Bible for yourself, one thing you learn, if there, there's one word that summarizes what the scripture says, it's the word redemption. It is the story of redemption. God redeeming a sinful race. From the very opening passages to the very close of Revelation, it's the story of how God redeems his people a fallen and sinful race. And there's a couple things you'll notice about this. First of all, this redemption is historical. Justin explains uh, people that really live, people like Adam, uh, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, Jesus. There were men who really lived and really died. So this redemption, it takes place in history. We have a sacred history that records this for us that we can read and learn from. And secondly, this redemption and its revelation to us is progressive. Now, I don't mean it's liberal or it's Democrat or it's a Nancy Pelosi type thing. Progressive means just something that increases or improves. Progressives think that if their practices are put in place, humans will progress. Well, we're saying this redemption, it increases, it improves. We learn more about it as time goes on. Uh, if you were to do a, a chart of uh, the amount of progr uh, revelation here and time, it would increase as the scriptures go on. It would, there, it would go, the slope would be, I guess, between zero and one if you think ge uh, geometrically. So there's an increase in history as time goes on. And if you were, to, again, to plot that out, it wouldn't be a, a casual slope like this. It would kind of go up a little bit. There'd be times where it was flat, and there are times where it would shoot up a large amount and then maybe flatten out again and go up again. So there are these big chunks of revelation that appear to us, that God gives to us at different times in Scripture. Um, and that's what we mean by the idea of 
progressive revelation. And when you look at the, those chunks, they, they center around certain time periods. For example, uh, when Justin preached two weeks ago, immediately after the fall, what does God do? Well, he reveals something to us about the coming redemption. He mentions this seed who's going to crush the head of Satan, and in doing so, his heel will be crushed. That's revelation about redemption that we're given. So as soon as the fall happens, that there's a jump in this revelation. Now, we have this knowledge about how God is going to redeem humanity. And then it goes on, it kind of levels out for a while. If you go from chapter 3 of Genesis to chapter 11, it's rather depressing, isn't it? Uh, mankind spreads. There's all this emphasis on death. There's chapters, a whole chapter describing the death of the human race. Uh, man gets so bad that God has to send a flood uh, to cleanse the world. And he starts with a righteous man. And you think, okay, things are going to get better now. And then within a chapter after Noah, we have the Tower of Babel, and God basically destroys that, uh, scatters the nations, gives them different languages so that they'll never do that again. So chapter 11, it's kind of depressing. You think, okay, what is God going to do? What has to happen in order for the situation to improve? So we have Adam, we have this revelation about a seed, then we have sort of a revelation, but it's kind of negative. It's how bad man actually is, and that something really serious needs to be done. There's a major intervention that God has to do if man is to truly be redeemed. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we have a made, the first major jump. It skyrockets the information we have about redemption. Who's that? Who's the man that brings that? Abraham, exactly. God now is going to take one man, and he's going to establish that one man, and through that man, this redemption is going to come. At the end of chapter 11, you get to the point where something has to happen, and that starts to happen in a serious, wonderful way with Genesis 10, or Genesis 12. Uh, God says to Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So through this one man, all these blessings are going to flow to all of humanity. In fact, Paul sees this as the gospel. Uh, Abraham has 12 sons. Uh, each establishes a tribe. Then those tribes are sent into exile. And as far as we know, they're, they're there for centuries. And that line appears to be flat. Uh, there's very little information, in fact, zero information given to us in the scriptures about what happens in Egypt. So there's centuries that go by where the Lord is quiet. But this gospel uh, has been introduced. Uh, Paul says in the book of Galatians that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 12, in this initial presentation of the gospel, this initial promise that the gospel will come through Abraham in blessing all the nations. Paul sees that as an incipient message of the gospel, the universal gospel. So there's this massive leap in the amount of revelation that we have with the advent of Abraham and his sons. They go into exile, things get quiet again. And then at the end of the, the, their time in Egypt, things start to stir uh, new things start to happen. Uh, the people cry out to God for help in their oppression, and God answers them. And then we have another massive leap in the amount of revelation we have about that redemption, and that comes through the Exodus. God speaks to mankind in a way that he's never spoken to them through the event of the Exodus. And what God is going to do, he's going to take this tribe that's been enslaved for 200 years, and he's going to make a nation of them. 
And through that nation, these blessings of Abraham will then come. And there's some of the most wonderful prophecies about Christ in this revelation given through the exodus, through the um, wanderings of the wilderness, through the arrival into the land, and through the ultimate conquest of the land. And during that time, it kind of levels out after a while, after the conquest, but then even within there, there are large jumps in the revelation. We learn uh, through uh, uh, Samuel and Kings that this Messiah, this one who's going to save the world, is going to be a king. And he's going to have an eternal kingdom. And that that kingdom is going to be from the line of David. That God is going to bless David in such a way that he will have a, king, a son who will reign forever over all of the universe. That's a promise given. There's another jump in that knowledge that we have of redemption. And then it goes on, there's times where it's quiet, there's times where there's more, there's less. I remember the days of Samuel, I think how does it phrase it, that the words of the Lord were few and visions were rare during the ministry of Eli, the wicked high priest. So there's times where it sort of flattens out, where there's not much being given, and times where it jumps. So the three major jumps we have are the right after the fall, calling of Abraham, and the establishment of the nation Israel and the events that surround that. And then there's these new prophecies that, that start to come forward uh, that are, are just, the, to me, the most amazing prophecies in the world. There's nothing like them in the Scripture. They start with Isaiah and go through Jeremiah, uh, through Ezekiel, through Daniel, and, and kind of quiet down after the book of Daniel. Uh, one of the first ones is the picture in Isaiah chapter 2. Here you have Israel. Uh, they've been utterly defeated. The northern kingdoms are wiped out. Judah is a little tiny nation in the midst of these massive, powerful nations. It's basically nothing. And God gives this prophecy of the city of Jerusalem, the mountain of Jerusalem being raised up. And that the Lord sitting on that mountain and ruling the world from that mountain and the nation streaming to that city to seek the Lord's counsel. Nations coming from all over the world, streaming like rivers into the gates of Jerusalem to seek the counsel of this king. And it says he teaches them, and he teaches them to beat their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and man will learn, never learn war again. Uh, amazing prophecy when you think of the context that it was written in. So we start to see these just incredible uh, predictions. Uh, they, they go for chapters. There's an example in Ezekiel uh, 40 through 48 where there's this massive prophecy given uh, about the details of the temple. The temple is going to be 52 miles long and 21 miles wide. It goes into exquisite detail about the size of every piece of furniture, every threshold, every room, every arch, every gate is measured and written down by Ezekiel uh, to tell us the great splendor of this temple that's going to exist one day. In the middle of this, I think in chapter 47, there's a river that is described. And it starts as a little trickle, a little bubble from the south part of the temple. And then flows east into this massive river. And the Lord commands Ezekiel to try to ford the river. So he walks out. It's almost a mile and a half in our terms. And it's just up to his neck. He has to swim after a mile and a half. We're talking about a place where most rivers, you could shoot an arrow across the river. Here's one, it's so massive that you walk a mile and a half out and you're only up to your neck. 
Uh, it, it's, wherever it goes, it says it brings life. It flows into the Dead Sea, and, and it turns the water fresh, and it's filled. It teems with life because of the, the effects of this river. On, on its bank grow trees that bear fruit every month, and its leaves, it says, provide healing for the nations. And you read these prophecies and you scratch your head thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Or the a vision of the valley of dry bones, where God, uh, Ezekiel looks at that massive valley of dead, bleached bones and commands them to come to life and the bones come together. It says it's a great clanking sound. And then they uh, develop muscle. Uh, they have sinew joins them together. Uh, they're covered with skin, but still they're dead. And then God breathes into this, these entities, and they come to life, a living, standing army. And, and they're just, they go on for page after page after page. And, and you're thinking as you read these things, what in the world is going to happen? And they all center around one event about 100, 150 years before this event and a couple decades after that event. They all seem to cluster around this one event. Anybody know what that is? The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the nation of Israel. Here were the people that God was going to use to bring blessing throughout the world. And it's been utterly destroyed, humiliated, wiped out, and the people dragged into slavery into Babylon. So that's when these new prophecies begin to arise. And you think, what is going to happen? What is the Lord? I can imagine reading in the days of Ezekiel, or sometime after that, during maybe the second temple when the Jews came back, reading these prophecies and scratching your head thinking, what in the world? We came back as the Lord promised, but this is not what the Lord spoke of. There's something greater going to happen. And what Matthew is doing in this passage is telling us that the things that those prophecies spoke about is getting ready to happen. Everything that they mention is going to begin. So it's a very deep, a very profound passage. All that Ezekiel said, all that Isaiah spoke of, these long, uh, laborious, these enigmatic passages are about to unfold, and you're about to be a witness to that unfolding. So there's a very deep meaning here that we have to draw out of this passage. Again, the, the Matthew's message is, it's here, this day has arrived. And the question is, uh, how does he do that? How does this weird, enigmatic passage do that? And then, uh, what is he saying is going to happen? So, how does he say it? How does he link these together in this one passage? And what is it actually going to happen? Now, how does a, a maniacal king uh, committing infanticide and this strange quote from a prophet given 500 years before, how does it tell us that these prophecies are about ready to unfold before your eyes? Now, to begin with, we have to understand two things. First, uh, the context of Matthew. What is happening here? And again, most of us are very familiar with this. It's not very difficult. Um, we're familiar with the story. Uh, Jesus is born. Uh, the Magi come from the east to worship him. They follow a star. Uh, they arrive in uh, Jerusalem. The star seems not to not have led them right to the point of Jesus, contrary to most nativity scenes. But it brings them to the west. Uh, they inquire from Herod. Uh, we've heard about this king. We followed the star here. Where is he? 
uh, Herod very interested in another king rising up maybe to replace me or to cause some kind of commotion among the Jews. All, the last thing that the Jews need is another king to follow to try to overthrow the Roman Empire. So he takes an interest in this. And uh, he calls the scribes and, and the high priest, and they sit down and they, they figure, well, the, the scripture says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So the Magi go there. And uh, Herod tells them, you know, when you find him, come back and let me know because I'd like to worship him too. And his ulterior motive here is to go and kill this king before he can ascend to a throne or, or cause trouble. So the Magi go, they, they worship Jesus, they give him gifts, uh, they bless him, uh, and on their way back they hear from an angel. The angel of the Lord says, it comes to them and tells them that uh, don't go back to Herod, he's plotting you know, to come and kill the, the child, so go another way. So they go another way. Uh, Herod finds out, he's absolutely infuriated, and he goes on a tirade and kills all of the children in not just Bethlehem, but the surrounding region from the age of two and below. And uh, before this, uh, Joseph is warned about what's happening, and uh, he's told to flee to Egypt and escape this, uh, this horrible event. So Christ is delivered and saved. The other uh, dozens, perhaps hundreds of children, are not that they succumb to the sword of uh, the Roman Empire. And there's a reaction to this slaughter. And the reaction is a quote from Jeremiah 31.15, and this is where the passage gets very, very, uh, like I said, enigmatic, very mysterious. It says, a voice was heard from Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So this leads us to the second thing we have to understand. What in the world is happening in the days of Jeremiah? But what is this Rachel weeping? I mean, Rachel died probably six, seven hundred years before Jeremiah wrote. What is Rachel doing weeping at this time? And why is she being told to basically stop weeping as we look at Jeremiah? So she refused to be comforted. So what's happening in Jeremiah uh, that we can pull into the context of Matthew that, that'll show us what is going on in Matthew. And that's, what, that's where most of our work's going to be, is looking at what Jeremiah is saying, because there's a lot going on in Jeremiah. Remember we said that the, all these prophecies, and this is, Jeremiah 31 is one of those main prophecies that we're talking about. We just haven't mentioned it because there's so many more of them, but it's one of the main prophecies that is speaking of that time that will be fulfilled after the destruction of Jerusalem. So we have to go there and see what, what is going on in Jeremiah 31. And to do that, we have have to go all the way back to Jeremiah uh, 27, where the people of Israel are, are told that they must submit to the king of Babylon. Uh, Babylon has come in and had a couple of uh, attacks of Jerusalem, broke the gates down, went in, took a bunch of people as slaves, left a, a king there, uh, took much of the gold, much of the wealth. There's been a couple of those that swept through Judea and Jerusalem. And after the final one, God says, look, just relax. Listen to the king of Babylon and everything will be okay. It's going to be all right. Just do what he says. And that simply wasn't enough. In 20, chapter 28, a false prophet named Hananiah arises, uh, contradicts Jeremiah. And that was Jeremiah's message. Just listen to the king. This is what the Lord wants you to do. Submit. And they, they couldn't bear that. So they rebelled. And finally, the, the patience of the Babylonian Empire is expended, and they come in and they just destroy the whole nation, wipe everybody out and drag them off into slaves. And even going into slavery, uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles and says, look, um, you're going to live in Babylon, 
and this is what I want you to do. Submit to the rulers there. Uh, live there in peace. Carry on with your life pretty much like you did in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, find wives, uh, husbands find wives, wives find husbands. Uh, build your houses, do your work, and, and pray for the city because the welfare of the city is your welfare. So that there's a comfort to the people to live peaceably. Even under this exile, God offers them hope to live peacefully and live contentedly. They're to pray for the peace of the city and pray for the prosperity of the city. Then in chapter 31, we have a, a major change in the theme of the book. If you look at some of the commentaries in Jeremiah, uh, they'll often be divided into chapter 1 through 29 and chapter 30 through the rest of the book. And normally chapter 30 will, will, and on will be called the, uh, the book of consolations, where God now is going to comfort the people he's spoken to them of his wrath. The people have been dragged into exile as slaves and now... From chapter 30 on, the primary focus is going to be God comforting the people of Israel in their exile. And it's hard to describe the hope that Jeremiah offers the people of Israel in these chapters. It's astounding that after centuries of rebellion and disobedience to the Lord, uh, he comes to them and promises them a, a complete and full restoration. He not only promises them a new heart, but also promises that they will never be exiled again. So there's promises that are just heaped upon the people of Israel in this state of exile, in this apparently hopeless state. He will bring them into the land. He will give them a new heart that will guarantee that they never break his covenant again. Uh, the opening verses set the tone in verse 30. It says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Here they are, sitting in exile, being ruled by a pagan nation as slaves. And he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people. He says, I will bring them back to the land, and I will give them what give to them their forefathers, and all they, they and they shall possess it. So here in this exile, under God's wrath, Jeremiah sends hope to the people that God has not forgotten them. He will come to them again and deliver them. He says in verse 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I will draw you with loving kindness. What a beautiful phrase. I will draw you to me with my loving kindness, not, not scatter you in my wrath, but I will draw your hearts to mine through displays of my loving kindness. I will build you, uh, and you will be rebuilt. In light of this, he commands them uh, to take up their tambourines and go forth and dance, uh, uh, be merrymakers. He says that once again, you will take up your tambourine. Once again, you will dance. Uh, you will be merrymakers, and they will be among you. He continues in verse 7 and commands them to sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief and of the nations proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people and the remnant of Israel. Further in verse 13, he says, Then the virgins will rejoice in the dance, and young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. My people will be filled with abundance. Again, this is given to a desperate people who are under the yoke of God's wrath, who have been driven into exile because of centuries of idolatry and rebellion against their God. 
They are told that God will restore them. In light of that, they are to rejoice. They are to pick up tambourines. They are to dance. They are to make music. They are to be comforted, for their fortunes will be restored. God says, I'm going to keep my promises to you and fulfill them to you. So imagine this great scene of rejoicing of gladness. The Lord hasn't forgotten us. The Lord has restored us. And the fact that they're in this depressing state of exile makes their joy even greater, even more intense. But that's not all you hear. In the midst of all this happiness, all this joy, there's a cry of sorrow that bursts out. And that's the voice of Rachel. In the middle of all this, there's a deep, loud sorrow being expressed. Again, verse 15, after they're told to rejoice, uh, to be glad, uh, to be happy, to sing, to dance, it says, a voice is heard from Ramah. Lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So imagine, a good illustration when I think of this, I always think of the, uh, remember the story of the, who's that little girl, uh, was the beauty pageant queen at about five, uh, Ramsey, Bernard, Bernard Ramsey. Uh, you know, she was killed at a very young age. Well, it was at a, a, uh, a Christmas party. I think it was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And there was all these festivities going on in this rather large house, and, and the mother goes down uh, to the basement and discovers the dead child. And it's the people that were there said you could hear her screams throughout the house. That's kind of what's happening here. There's all this jubilation, all this celebration, and suddenly this loud wail comes up from a grieving mother who's lost her children. Now, how does that say that here? Well, two things we have to understand. First of all, who it is and where it happened. Who it is, it's Rachel. Now, Rachel is considered to be the mother of Israel the mother of the people of God. There are other son, other mothers from the children, but Rachel was the love, one that um, Jacob loved. Uh, he adored her, and he was the one he considered to be the, the true mother of Israel, as the rest of the scripture agrees. So this is the mother of the people of Israel. Secondly, the place it happened is very important and very insightful. It's called Ramah. Now, what is important about that? Uh, Ramah is a place where... First of all, uh, it's this, the, the city that the Jews were gathered to from all over Judah and Jerusalem where they stayed before they were taken into exile. So they basically camped out there until all of them arrived. It may have taken weeks, months for all the Jews to be gathered that were going into slavery. And they stayed there at this place called Ramah until they were ready to be taken to Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 41, 40 verse 1 says this. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after... Uh, I forgot to practice pronouncing that name, Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the bodyguard from Babylon, had released him from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So it seems to be a central gathering place of the exiles before they went there. Second important thing about it is Rachel's tomb is said to be in this city, in the vicinity of the city. So what we have happening here is there's all this, this partying going on, all this celebration. And Rachel comes to the door of her tomb. And what does she see? She sees that her son's being dragged away as slaves. That's the voice weeping. That's the voice crying out. A mother looking at all of her sons and daughters, the collective uh, pro a progeny of her body, 
being dragged away as slaves into a foreign land. That's the voice that is crying out here. That's the weeping that we hear, that quiets, that stops all of this rejoicing. Now you can start to see something of the relevance of this passage and how it relates to Matthew, but we can go deeper than this. Um, here you have God's people being dragged away into exile for their disobedience. Uh, their rebellion and disobedience and idolatry are so great that the wrath of God has fallen upon them, and as a result, they're being dragged away in chains as slaves into exile to be ruled over by the Gentiles. Again, they go right by Rachel's tomb, and again, she weeps. There's a deep sorrow. She's weeping for her children, and as metaphorically, as they're being dragged away in chains. Now, I want to focus here on, on the depth of this grief being expressed here. It's easy just to pass over. And, and I know this, this is kind of hard, but I think it's important just to see the depths of what is happening here. Uh, there, there are three levels of grief that amplify the sorrow here. This is just not a normal sadness or a bummer happening to her, okay? Uh, first of all, that these are her children. And I'm convinced in the short life that I've lived that there's nothing more difficult for a person to overcome than the death of a child, whether that child be an adult or a younger child. Uh, I've, had, I've pastored two families who lost children. I've wept with them, and, and there's nothing worse. So we have to bury our parents. One of us will bury a spouse. That's difficult. Burying a child, it's beyond belief. I don't know how anybody can deal with what people do. So that there's a depth of, of sorrow here. My grandparents uh, were, were people who were they're very tough people. They, they were hardened by the, um, the, the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s. So they were tough people. Uh, they knew how to take the blows of life gracefully and, and, and wonderfully. And uh, they lost a child. Their oldest daughter died when she was in her 40s, and they were in their 60s. And uh, at the time, a year after or so, they lived with us. And uh, every day of her birthday, they, they sat in their rooms and wept over the death of their daughter. Never got over that. Never got over it. And uh, remember Jacob, uh, when he heard, uh, or Joseph, when, Jacob, when he heard of Joseph's death, uh, said he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all of his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Very much like Rachel here, says she refused to be comforted. She would not let herself be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down into Sheol mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. And this is the man who, when was asked to summarize his life before Pharaoh, he, he said, my days have been few and unpleasant, yet this broke Jacob. So the, the death of a child, it, it, it's grief beyond anything that I could imagine, that I could imagine. Uh, secondly, the fact that it's a mother. Uh, there seems to be a, a depth of love uh, that a mother has. He, God could have put Jacob here and, and said it was Jacob, but it, it's, it's Rachel. And, and there's a depth of grief that a mother has for a child, and I think that, that go, goes deeper than the love a father has. Not that a father doesn't love a child or doesn't love them enough, but there's something about the bond between a mother and her children that makes th this grief go even deeper. I think that's being expressed here. There's a good example of this in the... Uh, uh, you ever read the book, The Yearling to Your Kids? Wonderful book. I've, I've read it like three or four times just to myself. It's a wonderful book. But there's a, uh, it's a story about a, three, uh, a family of three, father, mother, and a son, Jody, about maybe, I think, 10 or 12. And they live in a, the, the 
the swamps of central Florida sometime after the Civil War. It doesn't date it, but uh, the father came back from the Civil War and settled there with his wife and son. And, and there's a, uh, Jody and his dad are best buds, man. They're the friends. They do everything together. They talk together. Uh, they, they do everything together. But, but there's a distance between the mother and the son. Even as a child reading the book, I picked up. There's a, a coldness that she has towards the son. She loves him, and once in a while you'll see her kind of smile out of the corner of the eye of something that he does. There's an interest in him, but there's a, a, something, a barrier between them. And you learn what that is. It's a very touching scene when Jody goes out to the family graveyard. And there, there's just, I don't remember the exact count, but there's like 10 or 12 gravestones out there, all of them marking graves of children that this mother bore that died all the way from infants to 12 or 13-year-olds that died. And what, what you learn from the conversation Jody has with himself is that the mother put the distance there because she was so grieved by these children dying that she didn't want to feel that grief again, so she kept a distance there. Again, it, it's just incomprehensible, uh, the grief that a mother would share over her child, more so than a father. Not that fathers don't, but it seems to go deeper with a mother. So there's that as well. And there's also, there's the, what compounds the grief is the status of the children as well. Uh, these were people that were God's chosen people. Uh, they were to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. People were to look at the, this nation, or the nations around them were to look at them and say, what a great God that they have. Look at the way they live. Look at the laws that they follow. Aren't this a wonderful people? Their God must be the most fantastic, awesome God in the world just because of the way those people live. That's what the nations were supposed to say. And here they are uh, dragged out of the depths of idolatry into a foreign land where they'll live as slaves, basically. So the status, uh, what these people should have been. Remember one of our, uh, our friends, our best friends actually, uh, their son was lost to the uh, transgender movement, became a, a woman. And uh, I remember the mother wrote a letter. This is in her grief. She's much more stable now, much more uh, at peace with what happened. But the one thing she said was just the waste of it all. all. All we put into him, all we did for him, all the prayers, and it's just wasted. That, that's a deep sense of what's happening here. All that God did for these people, all the effort put into them, and it's all just gone. So there, there's a depth of sorrow being expressed here. That's really hard to fathom. And it bursts out in the midst of all this joy, all this contentment, all this happiness, the good news that God is going to save his people. Now what's interesting here is the Lord's response to Rachel. He says this, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Most commentators I read, they say there's a very light rebuke here of, look, there's no reason to cry. Stop your crying. Now, how many people, if you were, went to see Dan for counseling after a very grievous event like this, and he said, stop crying, it probably wouldn't be counseling much anymore. But yet, that's what the Lord's doing here. He's telling her to stop crying. There's nothing to cry. Cease your tears with a very, very light, some commentators say it's a strong rebuke, but I think it's a much lighter, much gentler rebuke to cease your crying, to stop crying. Again, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Um, 
Now, so we get, I think we have an understanding of what's happening here. Uh, how does this apply to the situation in Matthew? And what the Lord says, if you continue to read on in the passage, uh, the Lord basically says, look, what's going to happen, what I'm going to do for the people of Israel, uh, it, it's such a, a great monumentous event that it should just drown out any sorrow that you have for your children. The joy that I'm going to give you will be so insurmountable that it'll make your grieving right now seem like it's nothing. Now, we have a hard time believing that, but that's what the passage is going to say. So how do we pull that into Matthew? Okay, again, quoting Jeremiah, God is saying to these grieving mothers to stop weeping, dry your eyes, because God is about to do something so great and so profound, something that will bring so much joy in your hearts that it will drown out any sorrow that you feel right now. The grief and sorrow you feel over the loss of your children will be overwhelmed by the joy that will come from what the Lord is about to do. So the question is, well, what is he going to do? What great event can happen that, that could uh, assuage all the tears that these women are weeping over their dead children? What could the Lord possibly be doing that would take all that away and replace it with joy? Well, remember those prophecies we looked at earlier. All the things that they predicted. All the things that they said would happen. The great prophecies that were spoken by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel all of those prophecies are about to come to pass. That is what is going to stop their weeping. That is what is going to dry their tears. God now is going to shower his blessings upon his people as the rain comes down from heaven. Uh, they would be fully forgiven of their sins. Uh, they would have inscribed upon their hearts his holy law uh, that they might walk faithfully with him all their days. The great problem with Israel was that they would obey for a short time and then fall back into idolatry. There would be revival and they would fall back into idolatry again and again. That cycle goes all the way through the, the conquest of the land, through the book of Judges, uh, through the kings all through their history, there's these periods of revival and periods of failure. The revival lasting maybe a few decades, the failure often lasting centuries. That's about to stop because God is going to take his law, write it in their heart so they might obey that law and remain faithful to their God. He would fill their minds and hearts with saving knowledge so that they no longer say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. There'll be no ignorance among the people of God of who the Lord is. All of them will know and all of them will be saved through that knowledge. Then he will pour out his mighty spirit upon them. The spirit will come upon the people of God like rain upon a desert, like that great river in the wilderness. It will bring life to the people of God. The Spirit will bring breath into the people of God and bring them back to life. So those are the promises that God is saying are going to your days. In the days of your suffering, you are going to see these things come about. The same things that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel prophesied about those great, wonderful prophecies of God blessing his people with the Spirit as rivers flowing through a desert, as rain coming down upon a wilderness. The complete and full forgiveness of your sins and knowledge that will fill the world of the Lord. That is what's going to happen in your day. Now, how does this happen? Well, it's going to happen through the one who's going to come. 
Jesus Christ, Zacharias, prophesied over his son, John the Baptist, and he sums up perfectly what the Messiah is going to do. This one that John will be the forerunner of, uh, Zacharias says this, he will give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, which will... Which, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Think about that great passage in Isaiah 2. Who is it that comes? The Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Those who live in the shadow of darkness. The great sunrise will come and shine upon those who in darkness. A clear reference here to the Gentiles. So now he's saying, yes, they are going to stream to the Lord. They're going to seek Him. They're going to gain knowledge and wisdom and forgiveness from Him. He will guide their feet to the path of peace in beating plowshares into pruning hooks. Jesus says as He closes His high priestly prayer in John 17, I have made your name known to them which is, again, a way of saying, I have taught them about you and will make it known so that the love which you love me with will be in them and I in them. In the second chapter of Acts, and Peter, we've seen this a number of times over the last six months. Uh, remember Peter's, what Peter's trying to explain here in his sermon in Pentecost. They, they see all this spiritual phenomena, and they're claiming it's them being drunk. And uh, Peter's trying to explain, no, what this actually is, is Christ, the one you crucified, has sat down at the right hand of God. He has received all authority and all power from God the Father. And the first thing he does for his people as king, his first act is taking the Spirit of God and pouring it out upon his people. And that is what you see happening today. So all these things, Matthew is saying, are getting ready to take place. The stage is being set for all these great prophecies to be fulfilled, for the people of God can be forgiven so that they can gain knowledge of God, so that they can have the Spirit poured out upon them and have that law written in their heart to maintain their faithfulness to Him forever. If we keep reading Jeremiah 31, what is Jeremiah 31 famous for? With the great passage of what? The New Covenant, exactly. The new, all this precedes latter parts of Jeremiah 31 where God promises them a new covenant. Not like the Father, the covenant of your fathers, but a new covenant that will bring life to the people of God, that will bring obedience, that will bring forgiveness, that will bring the Spirit put into you to cause you to walk in His ways. That's all the precursor to what's happening here. It is the new covenant being given to the people of God. Again, there's forgiveness of sin. There's knowledge of God. There's the, what they call the interiority of the law written in their hearts. And then there is the gift of the Spirit. All these things are about to be brought upon you through the work of Christ. Therefore, no longer weep. As he told Rachel to cease weeping, he tells these women with their dead babies probably in their arms to stop weeping because God is going to do something that's going to completely obliterate any sorrow or any sadness that you have. And this is the hope God holds out to his people. Even in the depths of profound grief, there's a hope. The grief of Rachel as she weeps over the fate of her children. The grief of these women of Bethlehem as they hold their, their dead or dying children. Uh, th this is what he promises them. What did Isaiah say about Christ? Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. 
to make them easier for us to bear or possible for us to bear. Whenever the Lord wants to comfort his people, he does it in one of three ways. Uh, he never, it's never just that, you know, the British, you know, have a stiff upper lip, you know, just endure it, you know, persevere. It, it, none of that is ever given by God to us to help us in our suffering. It's not just, oh, bear it, put up with it. There's three things. One is the fact that Christ himself, as the example, already bore what we could never possibly bear. He's in speaking to slaves that are being beaten in the book of Peter. But what does he tell them? That bear your punishment as Christ bore his. How did he bear it? As a lamb before the shears, he did not utter a word. Use him as your example of suffering. And there will be great rewards. But he went through it. You can go through it. And secondly, there, there's an idea of he's sympathetic to us. He suffered like us, yet without sin. Therefore, he's able to give us the grace. There's nothing greater than somebody who has sympathy. When I mentioned those families who had lost a child, uh, the one family lost that child first. And then a couple years later, the second family lost that child. And immediately when that one second child died, that first family was right there with that family by their side, helping them in every way they can. There was a sympathy there that united their hearts together to persevere through that event joined together. And that's the way the Lord is with us. He sympathizes with us because he suffered in many ways like us. And then there's the second way, a third way he helps us. And that is by showing us that in light of the great things that he's going to give us through our suffering, the things that we receive in eternity, the glory that will be revealed to us for our suffering. He says, anything that you go through now is nothing more than what he calls a momentary light affliction. When you compare it to the eternal weight of glory, you will receive. Things in the ancient world were, were measured by their weight, how heavy they were, determined how valuable. Gold was very, very heavy. Therefore, it was worth more than other things. So this eternal weight that you will be given based on your suffering should make what you go through now a momentary light affliction. Now, how many counselors here would have the confidence to tell somebody that suffering in this deep way, well, it's just a momentary light affliction, not frivolously, but how many would have the courage to say that? Well, Paul says it. In light of the gospel, in light of what you receive through the gospel, this is a momentary light affliction. Those are the exact words of Paul. So he helps us by example. Christ went through it. He helps us with sympathy. He's sympathetic with us. He knows what we go through. Therefore, he's able to help in a unique way. And just the fact that the rewards that we're going to receive for our suffering, the grace that's going to be poured out upon us in eternity, uh, it's beyond belief. It makes anything you go through at this time a momentary light affliction when compared, as Paul says, to the eternal weight of glory. And that's life for a Christian. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be suffering. I just finished a book by, um, I can't remember the author, uh, Live Not by Lies. And it's about the story of the, uh, uh, the, the Christians who went through much of the, the communist persecution in Russia and uh, Eastern Europe, and just the, the horrible suffering they went through. And yet these people endured it, and they endured it with grace and with joy. Uh, they were examples uh, to the other prisoners of not coming back broken, but after being tortured, coming back joyful and happy and content and spreading that joy and ministering to others through what they had suffered. 
So there's, there's many testimonies of this, not only in Scripture, but in history of God doing these very things, helping people as they suffer. And we just, I mean, we suffer a lot, but we don't suffer as much as many people. And when we do, there's the promise that God will be with us, that the gospel brings comfort. It brings hope. The light of what God has done for us, the, what he will do for us, the rewards that we have should turn any sorrow in comparison to joy. And again, we have to often work for that. Uh, many of these men just didn't go through their first beating in prison and come out happy. It, it took wrestling. It, it took prayer. It took meditation. It, it took uh, reading of Scripture. It took deep fellowship with other men and women in Christ to be able to come through that crisis in that way that glorified God. But they were able to do it. God was able to bless them. I remember one time my, my, my son called and uh, was having some, some difficulties. This is after he apostatized. And uh, we had a talk about, about faith, about God. It was a wonderful opportunity to give him the, the gospel. And he said to me, he said, Dad, you know, did I ever tell you why I apostatized? Why I turned away from God? And I said, no, you never did. I just assumed you got hold of some atheistic literature and swaddled it hook, line, and sinker. I never, I don't know. And uh, he said, no, here's what happened. And he had a, a very traumatic event in his life uh, that he wanted to be taken out of. And he said, Dad, I, I prayed that God would give me a rope and take me out of this situation, that he would just remove me from it. And he never did. So I thought, why, why should I worship a God who doesn't hear me? And I said, well, Jeffrey, first of all, you, you, you don't understand the God that we worship. Because when we suffer for him, we never ask for a rope. We ask for perseverance. We ask for the right attitude. We ask for a heart that will still love him and honor him. We ask for an attitude that will be a witness to people around us to show us uh, his love working in us. We never ask for a rope. And I said, all that your mother went through with her cancer. I don't ever remember hearing her ask for healing. What we prayed for was, God, get us through this in a way that honors and glorifies you. And that is how we deal with suffering. That is how God tells these mothers to deal with it. Look at the gospel. Look at what you have in light of all of your suffering. And all of these things will pass. Again, it's work, it's prayer, it's discipline, but God grants that promise to us. And that's what we as Christians have. That's the hope and the gospel that we have. And if you're not a Christian, I assume you know by now that life is full of suffering. And there may be more suffering on the way. We don't know what the future holds, but we know that there will be suffering. And that grace that is extended to us is extended to you as well. The most important thing is you go through that suffering, not with a desire to be removed from it, but that you go through it with your sins forgiven, you go through with it with the knowledge of God and that you go through it with the power of the Spirit enlivening you and giving you life. And those are all three things that Christ promises us through the gospel. And what is required? What do you have to do to gain that? If I said, well, you can have these blessings if you run out to that field and grab one of those seagulls and bring it back to me live. If you do that for me, I will give you this. If that's what God said. Or I want you to go out and, and climb a telephone pole and, and climb up and down it 10 times. Would you do that for eternal life? Most of us would say, certainly. What a small price to pay for eternal life. Well, what does Christ say? Believe me. Listen to what I say. Hear me. Call out to me. Cry out to me. All things that we do, simply throwing our burdens upon him and asking him for the help that he promises us. That's what the gospel centers upon. And if that's what you desire, 
then there is a savior, a sympathetic, kind, compassionate savior who is drawing you with his loving kindness to come to him with all these promises in his hands saying, believe in me and all this will be yours. That's the simplicity. That's the glory of the gospel. And it's there for any of us who call upon him and who ask upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have questions about that, then talk to me, one of the elders, another member. But consider the truth of the gospel. Consider the blessings. Consider the hope. And we could even say consider the pain of not believing him, of rejecting him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the word that we've heard, despite the the weak attempt to preach it. We we trust that that you will bless this word to the hearts of your people, that you would give them comfort, encouragement, Father, through the words of the gospel. And if there are any here who don't know him, that they would take comfort in, well, not in their current state, but change that state by, by coming, by believing, calling upon the name of the Lord, who will surely hear any who call upon him. We ask you to do these things for your people. In Christ's name, amen.